0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned,
1: immaculate.
0: Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love the special guests. This week is going to be the turn of Echo Belly, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all the other groovy stuff. And this was with Glenn Johansson and also Sonia Madden, who were, yes, on the end of them. Um, Zoom call, really. Um, So just to give it some context, this is um, September 2021. They're about to go on tour throughout the UK over October, and they've got various dates, including next year at a um, festival, Creation Records, I do believe. So we talk about all that. But yes, this is a little bit about the tour that's going to come up. Um, And then we get down to the usual exciting stuff that, you know, we love to talk about. Anyway, so yes, after talking about, um, yes, getting to know you as you do, it's showbiz. We got down to that nerve wracking experience of going out on the road again and uh, whether everything is going to still be okay, or any members of the band could just get struck down with, um, yes, whatever, COVID, I suppose. Anyway, this is Sonia's reply. Sonia, it's over to you.
2: Yeah. It, it is scary. Um It's not just that. It, it's, you know, is there going to be another lockdown? Are people are scared to go out and stand in crowds together at the moment? You know, there, there's all sorts of issues. I think you've got to be a complete nutter or very brave to be an artist. <laughs>
1: yeah, oh, exactly. It's not It's not that I was kind of scared of getting ill or anything like that. It's just, that's what I said, if, if, if that's like a fire, what do you call it? Those fire... Lockdown, whatever it's called. Yes. Uh, Court one or something. Fire break. Um, that's, that's more nerve-wracking for me than anything else. I'm not bothered about anything else, really.
0: No, well, absolutely. Absolutely. And just kind of briefly, because I always find this kind of interesting. So stick with it but you know I was born born in this sort of like the mid-60s so my early formative musical moments in life were the early 70s with glam with you know Sweet, Slade, T-Rex, Gary Glitter luckily David Bowie was my first single and my first love thank god for that um what was your kind of kind of you know both of you not together but um individually what was your kind of musical moment that happened that 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 changed Mm. your life so to speak?
1: Well, it's not that dissimilar from yours, really, I think. Uh, Bowie was, was uh, always a big uh, kind of influence when I grew up. Uh, but I also was really into kind of kind heavy rocks, Led like Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, things like that. I, I kind of grew up on that as well. And uh, later on, I kind of grew into bands like The Smiths, uh, for instance, and, and that kind of changed my direction a little bit, I think. Yes, and I'll come back to my original thing again. I think a little bit more, so it all comes around.
0: Yes, it all comes. In. Sonia, uh, I find it
2: quite difficult to answer because I didn't have uh, what most of our musicians seem to have—a real love of you know music—and and they grow up and want to follow in that category. I, I, um, I, I honestly say, I fell into this by accident and um yes I listened to chart music and, and I was a devotee of John Peel when I was a, a teenager um but really I, I wasn't I mean there was a period of my life I wasn't allowed out of the house until god knows when i only allowed to go to the library to study I you know so I, I didn't have access to a lot of things um I did sneak off once um you know go out with my girlfriends and we we went to see some band or something but generally speaking i i'm a bit of an oddity <laughs> yes
0: well it was interesting because i did, i remember sort of doing a interview with a woman rachel i can't remember her surname she was an american and i think that the band was called kicking giants and she came from a very sort of christian household and they had to yeah. have prayer meetings i mean and and sort of decide whether she could sort of i don't know Sing a song or something like that. It was like she started a very, you know, like it was one of those kind of American fundamental Christian households that was very strict on everything. And, you know, obviously she became a sort of a wild, you know, punk. punk, Yeah, Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) But there was a lot to, yes, because actually my parents, I mean, they were nice, but they were very conventional. So it was quite easy. But I can't imagine what it'd be like to have parents who might have gone to Glastonbury and seen Jimi hendrix or gone to see you yeah. know these wild bands and taking lots of drugs i, I like.
2: imagine it's a bit like ab fab in, in, absolutely fabulous in the sense that you are rebelling against your parents if they're pretty wild you're like oh for god's sake no you know just grow up so yeah, sure, yeah. I, i've seen that i've got friends who um come from very bohemian backgrounds they're, they're one in particular her mother is uh, an actress and Her godmother's a very famous actress and um, her godfather's a very famous rock star. And she did the opposite. She became a lawyer and she, you know, it was just like watching her mum get drunk and take drugs in the 70s. It was, it turned her the other way. So in her own way, she's rebelling as well.
0: Yes. So was the 80s the kind of the formative years then for both of you sort of, you know, with your musical direction of of what happens next in the 90s?
2: For me growing up, I think the first thing I fell in love with was madness. I I just loved it because they were like the boys at school for me, exactly the same look and character and cheekiness and immense talent, but it was never suck your cheekbones in and be cool. It, It was just a joyous celebration of, what they were, which was pretty damn unique for the times. Yes, Uh, And also the specials and bands like that, they're the ones that I really remember kind of really enjoying, really getting into.
0: Yes. And Glenn, what was your moment like in the, in the, the, the I I don't
1: know, I think, again, as I said before, I think uh, the Smiths were quite pivotal for me. and. I was really into a lot of kind of those late 80s guitar bands. Um, uh, uh, what are they called? Uh, uh, Smiths. Uh, as the he- Camera. He- as the Camera, Echo and the Bannerman, kind of all that kind of thing, you know, that kind of jangly guitar British.
0: Because yeah. it's kind, uh, of it, 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 kind of having done this show and being obsessed with that period and especially the next period as well. It's kind of interesting because you had the punk world and then you had post-punk and then, you know, you had this, like, the the specials and then you had sort of the Paisley movement and the goth movement, but indie pop came along between, see, I've got indie pop between the years of 83 to 87, which was the years of the Smiths. It's not a full sort of watertight theory, but it's kind of the best I can do. And then when they broke up, ecstasy came along and there was this kind of whole change and the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds wanted their soundtracks. It was like Primal Scream, the Happy Mondays, And suddenly rave became a thing. And then slowly you had the Pixies and Throne Muses. And then obviously, you know, the grunge, you know, scene from Seattle. So there were bands who came along a little bit after that, like Sundays. I remember thinking at the time, God, the party feels like it's almost moved on a bit. And they've just appeared, even though their first album was still brilliant. it, It did feel like there'd been this kind of quite a big shift in sort of musical styles and trends. And I wondered if you'd picked up on that.
2: Uh, We're perhaps I, not su- such musos as you are
1: <laughs> uh, But you're spot on though, I think
2: Yeah
1: I think you're spot on I right
2: mean, we wouldn't think about it perhaps as in, in such uh, depth
1: Yes,
0: but then, so as the decade changed And suddenly we had the John Major years We loved the John Major years, especially now um, It seems so much better When did you all, When did the band sort of begin to sort of form and sort of start to um yes patch it was uh 92 or 93 late 93 i
2: think it was or ninety three, yeah
1: 93 yeah 93, yeah,
2: 93. Yeah. i mean i i i'm a london girl um glenn came over with a bunch of swedish guys and they were playing in a band um in in a bar in, in central london and uh we, we just clicked, you know, I was, I was watching all these blonde guys playing guitar and uh, Glenn and I just, we got on. And three weeks later, he moved into my flat in Soho and I, I kind of fell into writing with him uh, just to see what it was like. Because I've always had a love of words and I, I consider myself a lyricist more than a, a singer. Yes. And so I think that, um, you know, it, it was just this wonderful way of expressing myself to have someone to be able to write such in my view beautiful music and for me to have the chance to put words to it um so it it was just because we were young and you know time is it's just a different priorities are different then you don't have any issues as to you know mortgages children all that stuff that most people get into later on in life We, we just loved what we were doing and, and very quickly put a band together because london was very vibey then literally bands were cropping up mm. everywhere you could go anywhere there were always gigs going on lots of venues lots of uh, pubs you know places yes. to meet mm. art, uh, creativity um, in, in fashion everything was there it was, it was just a very buzzing time i think
0: very there was, there was quite a lot of bands that came up because the other thing that us you know found out from doing these interviews is timing is everything some people went god we were just two years too early for that scene and we just kind of missed it mm-hmm. and the, our life yeah. we you know but your timing couldn't have been more perfect really because there was this kind of new wave of i suppose optimism even though we're you know, I say we—this is me really here, isn't it? Being, <laughs> we moan a lot, don't we? Let's face it. So we we we're never happy until we look back, and then we get very nostalgic about a period. <laughs> <laughs> so we so there was this kind of strange optimism leading up to the New Labour period, and you sort of sort of slotted in just perfectly with this kind of sense of optimism, even though with the, with your lyrics there were sort of kind of dark undercurrents as well, wasn't there?
2: Yeah, I suppose I always explored um, unexplored territory. If you actually um, bother to, or if you're an Echo fan and you understand some of the subject matters are, are quite obtuse and uh, esoteric at times. So I think that uh, you could take it as a, cele- you know, like a typical Britpop band and just celebratory, but there was always an undercurrent of something else, something darker going on with us
0: yes well absolutely and did you sort of find you quickly got an audience because that's the other thing that sort of people often sometimes struggle with and other times people just kind of quickly go my god there's so much attention we can't sort of this is all going terribly easily
2: it happened very quickly for us very quick I mean I'd never really done anything before and we, we literally you know you could count the number of gigs we did on your hand um and that was it what we did one gig uh in the uh, essex uh nobody turned up not one person and then literally a few gigs later um it just there was such a buzz and we couldn't get in we I remember going out to get some food and then coming back to the venue and just pushing past people you couldn't get into the bloody show because it was just full of music industry and and people trying to sign you so it was all you know very um Black and white, really. It was yes. A very strange experience.
0: And you went with Rhythm King Records at that time. What was the sort of reason for that?
2: Because they were so keen. I think artists, it's something people don't talk about enough, were a very insecure bunch. And when someone tells you that they love you and they, or they admire you or that they really get you, it, it presses buttons on deep levels of insecurity and self-doubt that you feel that that person is going to protect you. You know, ironically, they're the ones that usually rip you off. But uh, <laughs> uh, in your naivety, you, you, you feel understood. Yes. As if someone says all the right things, as in, I love your music, I really want to work with you, I want to take you further, you know, let, let's make rock and roll together. And You just think, yes, especially when you're young and naive and <clears> you <throat> have no... Uh, guidance in this business yeah so did you
0: have be- a manager at this stage who sort of found themselves well, part not. of the team <laughs> Again, in the sense
2: of the we, we had a manager who was a manic depressive and uh turned out to be uh how do i put it diplomatically um useless okay there you go um not very good well they he was useless so we we had a lot of attention in america we had a big Um, uh, management teams out there trying to take us on and even though the deal was for him to let somebody else manage us in America he just didn't let it happen so we we missed the boat you know there's all sorts of things that you just think oh god if someone had just helped us along the way it would have been a lot better
0: yes absolutely
2: rock and roll
0: it is rock and roll because I know when I remember Robert Plant doing an interview once and he was saying that when John Bonham had died and Led Zeppelin had finished. He said that was the end of innocence. Did you did you have a moment like that yourself with the band where, he, you know, it felt suddenly like everything was kind of going so well and then some, something happened that you thought, God, oh, I can't yeah. be that.
2: Well, we had um, a number of things go wrong at the same time. It was um, the stars misaligned, shall we say. And um, we had uh, our best friend who actually came up with the name Eko um, Hung himself, hanged himself rather. And um we had all our money stolen by our accountant, and we had sacked our manager at this time, so he was now suing us. So we were in this horrible position of also the record company, Sony wanted to take us on, and Rhythm King didn't want to let us go, they wanted to take us to another label. So they were fighting. So we for a whole year we were stuck, we couldn't make a record, and then everything imploded Uh, the money that was stolen literally left us with 200 pounds um it wasn't just us it was primal scream and suede and a number of other bands but it was an awful time and it was the culmination of death suicide rock and roll just disaster theft um and in the end the drummer glenn and myself we, we sat there getting very drunk and um we decided we're just going to go on a trek and we're going to go to Nepal for millennium because, you know, life is just hell here. And we're going to sit and look at Mount Everest and listen to Jimi Hendrix. That was the drunken conversation. And uh, we did one practice walk in Richmond Park, which ended up in the pub. And off we went to Nepal on this trek, totally not prepared at all for what was to come. And it it was just, uh, that was our moment of um almost desperately trying to take control of our sanity
0: yes that was that was quite something your 90s was quite full wasn't it really let's face it (laughs) you managed to get sort of was it three albums various kind of massive tours a huge amount of publicity but you must have felt kind of did you feel emotionally chewed up by then
2: yes very much
0: so you know because that's that's always the great because i did i did an interview with the guy from the bay city rollers god i can't remember his christian name god that's terrible but he was one of these you know they were huge they were huge all over the world and then one day he just walked off and went where's my money it's like you haven't got any it's like yeah, you know his, his life just went through yeah. horrendous experiences ever since yeah. you know and then he unfortunately died this year I think so um yes it's it's not an easy trip actually so when you were sort of making obviously the big album that that, that really sort of kind of sort of shot you into this kind of, kind of massive fame was on can you remember the process of putting that together did that sort of happen relatively smoothly?
1: Well, uh the album was kind of written on tour because we released the first uh, after we released the first album we were touring there quite heavily. So I remember writing a lot whilst touring. Um and we wanted to work with the uh, two producers that did radioheads of the bands, um Paul coldry and Sean Slade, uh were based in America in uh, Boston area. And they came over here uh, to record the album, uh, did some pre productions some rehearsals with them. Then we went into Kong Studios uh, in North London. Uh, it was quite a quite an easy, easy recording, I think, a uh, couple of weeks tops. And then went uh, to, over to to America to mix it in, in Boston. So I, uh, that was an enjoyable process, I think. The second album, it, it really was. Um, it's very creative. We got on really well. Uh, it's no problem at all we had a great time doing it so uh yeah
0: yes and with the song called dark therapy how mm-hmm. did that sort of come about and and can you remember the process of that being written yeah. and recorded
1: yeah. just tried to uh, rewrite <laughs> 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 uh, what's his name
2: <laughs> lyrically um uh, i had a flatmate who was a heroin addict and uh, well he wasn't a heroin addict he took heroin let's put it that way and I remember watching him inject himself Um, and he was talking about if you get a tiny bit of the cotton wool in your bloodstream you get a fever and um, this is dark therapy and I forever the lyricist and forever looking for titles the whole song is about you know how we reach for these highs through very dark means and um, the sort of the darkness in everyday life, because you 've got the uh, sorry
1: the doorbell
0: probably <laughs> <The> Amazon <laughs>
2: <laughs> you 've got these like uh, the third verse is very much you know two sides of the coin if you listen I, to the words yeah, like yeah. it 's um, lyrically uh, <laughs> talking about you know the, the positive and the negative, and the whole song is about the juxtaposition between the two
0: yes. So, so how does that cause the, the sort of the other single that from that album which kind of done I mean you know just hit everybody didn't it was Great Things. Is that sort of a bit of a sarcastic take on life or were you Which one? Just, sorry? Great great things. Great things,
2: never heard of it. <laughs> oh, great things is again, it's about when you're at a certain point in life and you're full of altruistic possibilities. You 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 really you know when you're a child you say yeah I want to be an astronaut you don't say I want i want to work in a, in a job that I hate you know mm. it's, all, it's all about um that point in life where you're still full of positivity hope and possibility um which kind of captured a certain e- era in Britpop as well so I think that's why it became an anthem
0: Yes, well, absolutely. And I know that actually, as with this, this famous cassette, everybody who was on it at the, at the time sort of didn't want to be on it. And there were various bands who said, no, I definitely want to be on it. But then years, decades later, go, God, I wish I was on that album. And Cherry Red Records has put out a triple CD, CD of 66 tracks, and everyone wants to be part of it. Did you have the same feeling with Britpop of like a love-hate relationship with that whole, oh God, we're part of this scene?
2: it was love hate i think it was love hate for everybody but also if you weren't part of that scene you were very much ignored so it was dreadful for any band but i mean i remember hearing uh reading an interview a massive attack wonderful band said that the, they couldn't get any press attention at the time because they weren't bloody brick pop so it was just really inclusive and exclusive if you know what i mean you you it that's all anybody seemed to want to talk about. Yes. And, um, so it was, thank God, yeah, we're, we're part of it. But at the same time, you know, you, whatever you rise with, you die with as well. And that's what happened.
0: With- yes. So when you came back in so like 2001 with the, uh, the fourth album, People Are Expensive, you'd sort of had quite a few years apart. How did that process sort of re-emerge? And did you make the phone call or, or was was it always sort of, a plan that you were going to do that album
2: it wasn't the same lineup we've we kind of lost people along the way so it was really by then it was um Glenn myself and our drummer Andy um so yeah it it was it was a departure from everything and it was almost like um when you feel that you still need to make music and I say need to make music because it is a difficult path for most people um, it, but you're free, you're free from A&R you're free from the restrictions um, of expectation it's very interesting to see what artists can come up with in, in that sort of place yes. um, and the title itself it was garnered from this um, radio interview with this bizarre American woman who used to Uh, have she had an agency for um artists or lookalikes she had a lookalike agency where you know if you couldn't get the real elton john you'd get a lookalike elton john and she was quite crass in her interview she said oh people are so expensive you can't possibly get them it was like something from um you know um spitting image it was just hilarious we managed to uh record it and sample it so it's actually in one of the tracks. But I just thought actually that title or those words people are expensive is so full of meaning. You can take it into any trajectory of thought as in you know we are dear we are important or we cost so much and we ruin the planet. You can you can go anywhere with it and I love open-ended
0: Yes, uh, I, I hadn't thought like of it that. like that Yeah, that was that was good And did it, at that stage of going in and recording the album How, how What was the atmosphere like? I mean, I know you've sort of had a slightly different, well, less <laughs> less band I mean, was it a sense of kind of enjoyment still doing it Or was there a sense of um, just feeling like, oh God No, no, absolute
2: excitement uh, It's the opposite, that's so. it Absolute excitement
1: We had just, me and Andy, the drummer, we had just, just Beginning to learn uh, to to start record with computers, uh, you know, software called Logic. Very early, uh, early stages of that. So so we had the facilities to do a lot of kind of demoing at home. So so we spent a lot of time working on the songs, and, and it gave us that freedom to to, to really do that. Um, and we had worked with a, with a guy called Ben Hillier. He worked on Lustra. The last album we did for Sony, he did some programming on the album and we really liked what he did so we, we approached him to produce the album and we had to get a bass player so we got i can't remember his name, <laughs> his name <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I just played on one record.
0: people are expendable as well as expendable. yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: and um, uh we recorded it in brixton uh it was really enjoyable really creative process um uh, we also had a keyboard player that was a real genius with, with kind of, you know, screwing around with sounds and making anything sound wonderful. So it was, it was a great time.
0: Yes.
2: I was i got to say, say the, the song on uh, that album called Point Dune, we, we would never have been able to uh, release something like that before. It you know, yeah. Well, I
0: always find it kind of interesting, going back to my David Bowie thing, was that, I know his 60s work was pretty hit and miss, mostly quite miss. And then he did his kind of you know early 70s, which was kind of all over the place. But the low album was like so experimental. And I suppose I often think fans and artists need to have those kind of moments of experimentation where you just yeah. think, We're just gonna do it for ourselves. And I always remember Brian Eno saying, when you know talking about the process and him telling David Bowie, he's like, no one's gonna die from what we do on this album, by the way, you know, let's just go with the ideas. And when you listen to it now, it is kind of like, that must've just blown the record company's mind. So it must've felt very nice to have that experience yourself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we started experimenting a little bit more with that album for the first time, Uh used to gather Instruments and things, there. so it felt like a real departure.
0: Yes. But, you know, and how were you? And, and how, was, how? How do, how were you coping from that sort of post nineties period of all the attention and the sort of the front covers and the sort of you know like television and stuff like that? Dealing with the next decade and another scene.
2: It was very weird because um, there wasn't really a scene. I think it was a very dead period. Musically, the kind of millennium.
0: Yes, I can't, I get a bit lost with that area because I know there's yeah. people like Jimmy Iovine and they would start doing all that, you know, I know he's a re- record kind of producer <laughs> and label sort of person but I know they were starting to bring in people like Marilyn Manson and all this kind of quite heavy rap stuff and NWA was sort of doing stuff I might be getting completely confused with my years at the moment but there was sort of a scene there was a there was a time when the production value of records was getting quite heavy and and sort of everything was getting a bit comic it had that comic effect of people like Marilyn Manson I suppose so I wouldn't say that to his face he'd kill me but um yeah yeah <laughs> but yes, though no, I was just kind of curious how that happened because when I spoke to you, I think it was a few years ago, Claire, You'd been sort of looking at re- the, was it re- tapes or recordings you would sort of remastering for another project from Abbey Road? Uh,
1: uh, yeah, it was probably a, we, we did an album quite recently called Hot Lullabies,
0: right. This is a
1: collection, because we wanted to create an album with a certain mood to, to show people another side of Echo Valley. Because most people, if they don't really know the band, uh, they hear Echo Valley, they know great things. That's, that's King of the Curve, perhaps, that's it. Um, but we, we wanted to make an album t- to show the darker side uh, of the band and to create a certain atmosphere. And so, I came up with the title, Blackout Lullaby. So it was a double vinyl album. And yes, I had to, to find all these tapes that I had stored away for, for years and years and years, and all that tapes. I don't know if you remember that tapes. Yes. Uh, uh, so it was kind of nerve wracking going through all those tapes uh, because I was a bit worried about them, you know, being faulty or something. Uh, one song got screwed up completely, yeah, the tape just went nuts. So, uh, but fortunately the producer had uh, an old copy uh, in his archive somewhere. So we managed to, to you know, get it all done.
0: Yes, and that's, I mean, well, I was listening Wrecking to that The
1: record oh. company holds the of uh, the masters as well, so so we had to deal with Sony again, and, and but it was all good. All good.
0: <laughs> so how have you coped, how have you navigated with that world of publishing and ownership of your work and sort of making a life or living from music?
2: Uh, we get by, it goes up and down, to be honest, but I think it's really... Um important if you can to try to own as much of your own catalogue as you can and we're, we're lucky we own our publishing all of it has come back to us now because we recouped a long time ago and
0: right so that's 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 probably been your best thing ever really isn't it yeah
2: yeah
0: so does yeah. that so do you feel that with after this kind of lockdown and the tour is there kind of be going to be another chapter with the band and and you know the sort of core of the band which is probably you two Mm. but
2: we don't actually know uh, how to do anything else (laughs) so we i'm afraid you're stuck with us for a while
1: (laughs) we have we have have a few ideas we we start thinking about another album but we just got to do this tour first and then we're going to get cracking
0: yes uh, and are you looking forward to sort of going out and touring again because i know that some bands i mean it seems a little bit different with you but i did. kind of interview with two members of Lush when they sort of done their thing, then they had a reunion and it didn't go terribly well. And, you know, they'll never ever play again. I mean, do you ever sort of find that there's a sort of keeping Echo Belly the name as some sort of like with, with sort of artistic integrity important to you?
2: It's, it's fundamentally important. Um, without that, you know, what, what's, what's, unless you go and start a new project and, can forget it but I think it's really important to um set out to follow your own path no matter what um because at the end of the day it's it is pop music or popular music but it's still creative in in your own uh, mind and you know you, you wouldn't be doing it otherwise so it's really
0: important. Yes, well I think everybody I ever interviewed it's kind of interesting because a lot of those 80s bands have a five year narrative they get together, they have that 12 months the honeymoon period, they get a John Peel session that's good, the first album that's even better and then there's the sort of tour in and then the second album and then possibly the third and then it's kind of over mostly, you know, quite a lot seem to have had a massive kind of break for music and then they sort of slowly come back to it but they kind of Juggle a you know a job career with playing music, whereas it seems like you've really just stuck with much more of a focused mind on playing music and the band. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: And does that oh. mean you're still feeling kind of inspiration and sort of ideas coming, you know, all oh, the time? Oh
2: I don't want to say too much no. because. <laughs> Lec, Lec is, uh I'm Joking. Well, yeah, I do. I feel excited when when I think
0: about you know the possibility of writing another album yes which is which is good and are you finding because I suppose the world of Spotify is a bit tricky isn't it this it's like it's not great for money but it's kind of good to get your you know work out there are you finding new fans people who are discovering you for the first time and to sort of I mean, well you haven't played too many shows yet have you but do you, do you, are you starting to sense that there's going to be a, a bit of a different audience than the last time you played live
2: you just never know I think uh, what's interesting is uh, I did an interview for a radio show recently and they said um, that some of the readers had said that they were playing great things to their daughters as their song for female emancipation and um, the fact You know, you can do anything if you want to. You know, being being a woman shouldn't restrict you. So I I never wrote it for that, but it was very interesting to think that uh, young girls were, whatever level, were using it as some sort of a, you know, a a positive...
0: Anthem. It's a positive anthem, isn't it, really? Yes, I would imagine that that has sort of gone down well. And I noticed that next year you'll be playing at the... Is it Creation kind of festival which is next may which um do you enjoy those kind of get-togethers i just wondered if it's the case that now that you meet each other you know from some of those bands there's a little bit more of a, a kinship of sort of not a support network but in, because I suppose a lot of people have often said you know at the time everyone was very guarded and they had their little kind of bubble and the little world and didn't speak to anybody else and they really wish they'd just been a bit friendlier to other bands yeah. but now they're kind of a bit older and wiser and they've had experience and they realize well let's just be friendly to each other I just wondered if you've also found yourself being able to be a little bit more like oh hi rather than oh my god I'm you know
1: well, I I, th- I think I think you, you 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 spot on there. I think uh, as people go older, they, they kind of realise, you know, it, it's it's unnecessary, you know. And uh, I find that people are a lot more friendly now than they used to be. There was it was great rivalry be between bands in the nineties. It wasn't that friendly, I thought. Anyway, we weren't really that friendly with a lot of bands, right? We? Well, the odd the odd one, but
2: I'm friendly with Oasis and Blur. Um, I suppose
0: yeah yeah yes well I, I think sometimes also and I suppose I'm a bit like this shyness can come over sometimes as being a bit offish but you think I'm just shy and insecure just give me a break so there you go and what's um I mean if you could have said something to your 16 18 year old self starting out is there any kind of advice that you would say god I really would just whisper this in their ear even if they would just ignore it
2: Ooh. <laughs> I'm sure there is I, I think um because it, it's a profession that you don't get any training for I think it it's a would have helped if if someone had said to us or or had said to myself to kind of believe in yourself stand by yourself almost you know it's, don't prevaricate don't mm. worry don't it's, it's very difficult because, you know, when, when you create something, you put your heart and soul into something, you create it, and then some dodgy little journalist says something nasty about it. You can be so traumatized. I'm not saying me, I'm a co- quite a tough cookie, but I know other people have been deeply wounded by comments um, to the point that, you know, you can make yourself ill from it, or, or people kill themselves.
0: Um, yes, well, actually, that's quite interesting because I did an interview with a New, a, a New York artist. O- I think his name's Oxbow, kind of quite an extreme character, and he said that after a bad review, he, he sort of put a gun in his mouth. He was about to blow, and his friend said, "Don't no, do that; it's not worth it." He's like, "My God!" That was, so that is kind of true that that kind of sensitivity to oh
2: they say, oh, it's just music but it's not just fucking music it's so important to certain people not just music but any form of creativity you are basically laying your heart and soul there and criticism is going to hurt but you're not prepared for it I mean I had a chat with um oh maybe I shouldn't talk about this too much um I had a chat with someone who then went and killed themselves the day after and he was trying to um, reach out to me and and he needed help he needed a friend and I'd never met him before and um, he disappeared the day after and I, I wish I'd sat and talked to him Longer, but I remember just thinking, "Wow, you know, he's in pain." And all of a sudden, the rest of the band came in, all drunk and pissed, and he buggered off, and I didn't see him again. It was Richie from um, Manx Street Preachers Right. It was the day he disappeared. the The night before he disappeared, or rather, we played a gig, and he turned up, and um, he was trying to speak to me. Uh, he he, had, he wanted. I mean, I haven't told the manics because i've never met them so yeah. i kind of quiet because you know but yeah he was he was deeply upset
0: yes god that's that is quite traumatizing actually isn't it really just to have that kind of memory i think yeah you can't yes you, can't, you no one knows what's going to happen the next day but you just don't expect that really to happen the next day do and you at all as well
2: i think um you know someone Mentioned that he just read something really nasty in, in The Enemy or, or something that took him over the edge of, all, of an already troubled mind, you know. So it happens.
1: Yeah, named the gun after the journalist.
2: Yeah, I mean, seriously, yeah. he named the gun after the journalist who'd written the Bad Review.
1: Jeezing,
0: crazy, crazy. Yes, that's that is that is
2: so if I if I did go back, I will just basically give myself a little bit more. Um, like a a blanket a psychological blanket around myself
0: yes well I I think that's that's true Well, it's kind of interesting because I know from that period there's there's been quite a few singers who you just think oh they've I mean it's a bit difficult because to be honest I was a huge (laughs) Smith fan so it's been a really difficult ride with my favorite you know singer from that period and um, you know again you know I just have to think oh well I have no idea but it does kind of make people a bit strange, you know, and that, and then there's other people from that period who, like Sinead O'Connor, who also struggled, and Michelle Schott, who seemed to struggle, and I just, I suppose, I was never a musician myself, but realising that, like you said, you put yourself out there, you're on stage, you're singing these lyrics, you're creating so much, it's not like you're giving yourself, you know, like putting out 50%, you're putting out 100%, and at the same time, you know, you're still relatively young. So it's very tricky when, when, you know, people make slightly, you know, callous or crass remarks because obviously it's it's like, it's better, I suppose I've learned, it's better not to say anything if you've got nothing really positive to say about a situation, really.
2: Yeah, up to a point. But I also think it's really important to express yourself. If you feel strongly about something, even though it goes against the grain of thinking, I think if you don't speak out you you end up suppressing it and it, that doesn't doesn't do you any good physically or mentally it's important to let people have free speech and be strong enough in yourself to say okay that's a point of view i disagree with it but you know respectfully let people speak because if you suppress it's been proven time and time again you create extremism Yes
0: well yes uh, absolutely but I suppose it's kind of interesting coming back to that NME experience or that writing because I think I've often put that the way that Morrissey got sort of hassled I'm not defending Morrissey completely here but I do kind of think that things kind of can build up in people which probably might not have been there but can just stir people up and make them even more angry and I think that that can have a an effect on an individual as well who's, who's probably a bit sensitive at the best of times yeah. Well I always a...
2: think of Morrissey as a, a culturalist oh. um, he's been accused of being a racist he's not a bloody racist for God's sake you know he, he's just done... seriously he's a culturalist he's, he's an oddity um, he's unique and he has certain opinions that can be Mis- misinterpreted very easily uh, there's also a tongue-in-cheek element there's a questioning there's an exploration of culture and what it means to be British or what it might have meant for him to feel safe what he might have loved when he was growing up but I do not accept the guy is a racist I have to stand my ground there as an Indian lady
0: Yes, well I I kind of well I suppose I spoke to a lot of people in from Manchester who were who knew him when he was very young and and from what they say they they wouldn't they wouldn't think he was a racist but they just think who knows (laughs) I haven't seen him for decades. I'll
2: tell you one thing which is never talked about um, with white people is that coloured people are racist too. It seems always to be like, oh, only you know, white people have to be educated. But you go into any society. And you will see racism. It's human nature to compare and disapprove and try to make yourself feel better by putting somebody else down. And I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it is human nature. And within Indian culture, within African culture, within Chinese culture, I have seen racism all the time. But it's never talked about. We are all racist in our own way. And I think we just need to just calm down and have a bit more of a sense of humour and a positive approach to life. We're all trying our best.
0: We, we, well, yes, I think that, that's very true. And uh, <laughs> that's very... I I think should... <laughs> 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 There's not much more. But look, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. And um, yes, and best of luck for the tour. And hopefully you know, it all goes really well. And, and coming to Norwich in October, which is... After this heatwave, October seems a bit strange. Now it just feels like we're in the middle of summer here. But anyway. Pardon? Oh, yeah, I'm in Norwich. Yeah, we're in Norwich. There you go. But look, thank you ever so much again. And yes, all the best. And um, I'm I'm trying to hit the bell. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you, David. All the best.
1: Bye bye.
0: And there you go, dear listener, show showbiz. That's how to end a phone call message anyway. It's all a bit fumbly, but um, I like to leave it in just for that very exciting, yes, memory. Um, a massive thank you to Echo Belly, that's Sonia and Glenn. Forgive me the time for that. This has been David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86show. And also, all these have been archived. Aren't you lucky? And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Do check them out. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe.